A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, I'm just, I'm, behind you. It, it, I'm at the top of Flaky Hill. Oh, it's a very spiritual place. <laughs> it's a dum-de-dum. It's one of those special ones where I like dig into the weeds with somebody, somebody special, somebody who loves uh, the archers as much as me. Well, actually, I think her vintage uh, and and her uh, kind of like love of uh, all things sports is probably even bigger than mine. Because um, she can write about it. I can't write for Toffee, as we all know. Uh, But she's written loads of words, loads of words. And by all accounts, um, it's been a key part of her life. So it's Charlotte Higgins. It's it's that Guardian journo who wrote, what, 15,000 words, was it, Charlotte? It may have felt like that, Royfield, but it was only 5,000 words. I tell you, it felt like like about 15,000 words to me. (laughs) You wrote. A it was quite it. hard to write. Well, it felt exhaustive, but in a good way, right? In terms of you got all aspects of the archers kind of down. You know, you spoke to the actors, uh, the uh, the showrunners, the directors, um, even fans. You know, and even down to to the foley artist. You know, she got a proper load of big ups. You know, the the spot ninja. The longest-running drama in the world is a soap opera about life in an English farming village. Every week, five million people listen to The Archers on BBC Radio 4. It is also the broadcaster's most downloaded radio show. It first aired 70 years ago, that is to say, during the era of the horse-drawn plough and tea on the ration. First off, um, the lovely thing about the article was that it kind of was a bit of a precursor wasn't it it was that uh, to the Beeb and other bits of media doing loads of things to celebrate the 70th anniversary of of the archers so uh first off um did you get your bosses and say look this thing is is like massive it's really important to five million uh brits each week it's the 70th anniversary is coming up or did they say to you oi get this written the former, actually, and and it was a it, it, we started discussing it a really long time ago. I actually think when the Helen 
Rob storyline was going on, I think we scratched our heads a bit and thought we should have we should have done something amazing about this. And and by the time, you know, these things take a really long time to put together. So we sort of missed the moment with that. And I'd always had it in my mind though, because so I write these long pieces for the Guardian and one of the that's my job. <laughs> and one of the things that I really like to do is look at British institutions and kind of hold them up to the light a bit and to take a bit of distance from them. Things that we often take really for granted because they're part of the texture of our lives, but in fact are really quite odd um, or revealing or find or providing useful lens for looking at aspects of ourselves. And I do think, you know, the arches is a really fascinating lens for looking at Britain or the way, or a kind of Radio 4 version of Britain. Um, so, okay, he, he, yeah, I had it in my mind. So, so ages ago, like um, 18 months ago, I went to, I had took out for lunch the press officers at Radio 4 and said, look, we really want to do this. And my, my bosses were really up for it. They, they took a sort of similar attitude that, you know, it could be brilliant. And, and my, one of my editors on this section, the long read of The Guardian, one of them is a committed Guardian, um, Archers fan. And the other one hates it. And that's a really good combination because the one who hated it also, you know, he, he doesn't know any of the characters. You know, I kept having to bear in mind all the time that I was had to try and write this article for people like you, Roy Field, or like my other editor, Claire Longrig, who know and love the Archers, but also for people like David, who David Wolf, my other editor, who's not interested in the Archers really, but was prepared to go with it if I could draw him in and make it sort of interesting enough. So that's how it came about. You talked about it holding up, um, that you write articles about British institutions and how they are some level of a mirror or how, how they help to explain, this is my interpretation now, explain uh, us uh, as Brits. How English forward slash British is the archers because I think this is all about England as opposed to Britain. I, I would absolutely agree with you. I think it's absolutely about England. It's not really about Britain. And certainly anecdotally, Scottish friends would tend to agree with that. <laughs> not finding much love for the archers among my Glaswegian friends. Um, no, I think it's absolutely that. And I think it's about the shires and I think it's about I mean, I said this in the piece, and I think it's partly because I'm from the Midlands. I'm from the North Midlands. I'm from Stoke, which came up in the arches this week, extraordinarily, um, with an artist, a knitting artist, a textile artist from Stoke-on-Trent featuring in the Lower Loxley Gallery. Unbelievable. I was so excited. Stoke in the arches. Anyway, I come from there. So, you know, it's always been in my mind, really, that it's, it's about a particular patch of the Midlands. You know, it's about some unknown, we can't really put our finger on it, patch of Worcestershire or Herefordshire. It's, it's, it's within reach of Birmingham, but it's not, it's not urban. It, you know, it's about this, it's about the Shires. And to me, that is a territory that's so rich with literary association. You know, it, it is, I don't want to get too pretentious, but I like being pretentious. Um, you know, it's Shakespeare, it's Tolkien, it's George Eliot, you know, all these, rich um, literary inheritances, which is not, absolutely not obvious in the arches, but I think they're, they're all kind of there in the soil, they're in the soil of Lakey Hill, 
feeding into the the drama and the sense of place that the arches has and and I think you're absolutely right it is that place and I can see it in your zoom background Royfield of the sort of rolling English hills it is about England yeah Mm. would you would you agree with that because you're a Brummie aren't you yeah but for me right and this might be slightly controversial I don't feel the Midlands in it at all other than references once a month to Birmingham being you know up the road to me it actually feels very southern but that's interesting i have a real sense of um this is a conversation i have since you know i spend three quarters of my year outside of the uk in california where i am now don't let lakey hill behind behind me fool you uh i'm in oakland right now california however I, i spend so much my time outside of the uk let's say England, that I have a view of England, uh, which I'm not going to say is particularly unique to me, but there are, I think there are three Englands. There's zones one to two, possibly three of London, which are could be anywhere in, in the world. It says this metropolitan, cosmopolitan thing, which just happens to be in England. Then you have urban England, where you have Indian corner shops and you have uh, public transport. Uh, so whether you are in Birmingham or in Manchester, they have commonalities or, or Glasgow, they have commonalities. You'll see people of other skin colours, but fundamentally, you know, they're not Americans like you'll get in, in central London. And there are, it's this staple of urban English life. And then there is rural, and I'm going to say England, because I haven't spent any time in rural Scotland or Northern Ireland. And that is as alien to me as me going to Denmark. Yes, we speak English and there are certain cultural totems that that we share, but people will ask me, where am I from? Nobody asks me where am I from in Manchester or in Leicester, shall we say. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are rhythms of life, which to me are very different. And considering I, I have this view of England in many ways, my, my love of the archers is slightly at variance with that because the archers for me is utterly a warm blanket. And, but for me, and I say this only half jokingly, all the farming stuff gets in the way of nothing much happening. You know, I, you know, I, I'm quite happy. And, and I know you, you talked about in, in your article as well about the fact that there's a whole legion of people like the fact that nothing much happens and it's about the rhythms of life uh, and community throughout a year. So, so yeah, the fact that it's a, a rural soap and that I'm so into this rural soap is, you know, I like Marvel superheroes. Like, I, I don't know how it's happened, basically. <laughs> <laughs> because it is Middle England's omnipresent soundtrack, it can be easier to see the arches as some kind of naturally occurring phenomenon than, say, an experimental, durational artwork that blurs the boundaries between fantasy and reality, or a peculiarly English epic, as its former editor or showrunner, Sean O'Connor, describes it. We should say, right, for full disclosure, that I interviewed you for the piece, um, and you are one of my most enlightening interviewees. It was a fantastic interview, and you told me about how growing up as a very urban boy, you had suddenly 
found the archers and it was sort of exotic and strange am i right yeah yeah no no absolutely uh, you know if you i know i grew up on a, a diet of um independent local radio brmb with laser ross and tony bullock going all right all right you know and uh and saturday doing the football because we got a goal down at west brom and and that was great and a way of realizing that there's a world outside of birmingham was radio four there were people talking about travel throughout the world and it's not by accident you know i ended, here i am in, in in california you know it was it's not it's not a rejection of england or of britain but it's just like there's a world out there and radio four was was my gateway into escaping uh an upper working class lower middle class uh neighborhood and uh realizing that um yeah there, there was something outside of brum and, and the west midlands you know, so the fact that it was actually the arches is made in Birmingham is, uh, you know, pure, purely an accident. You know, there's no there's no hometown allegiance there. And the fact that it's supposed to be 20 miles away, because that world for me isn't 20 miles away. It's a thousand miles away. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 and there's a whole it, it's so fascinating, that whole thing about listenership and, um, you, you know, we are we listeners I think are probably largely urban I mean it's quite hard to get to the bottom of this uh isn't it because I mean you know we need a sociologist to tell us precisely but it feels like a lot of us listening are urban so there's this really peculiar um explaining the country to city people which which of course it's all always had and Godfrey Baisley I had in fact I've probably got on my desk somewhere if only I could unearth it but I won't the original memo, not the original Roy Field. I didn't steal it from the BBC archives. <laughs> but I, I, I photographed it on my phone and then printed it out later. The original um, memo um, pitching the Archers uh, in 1950, August 1950, talks about exactly this: that it has to be, you know, obviously it has this, it has this um, pedagogical impulse at the beginning to imp improve or modernise farming, but also mm. Uh, it's to it's to make people feel people in the city feel more in touch with the countryside, which it which it does, which it, it does. does. It, it yeah. does I mean, I like feeling in touch with what's going on in the seasons and you know yeah. lambing and all of that. I wouldn't know there is such a thing as an anaerobic digester if it wasn't for the archers. Do you know what I mean? Totally herbal lays, herbal lays. I mean, I have had to Wikipedia them. I mean, I, I still can't quite remember what they are, but, you know, there's a whole... I mean, it's completely fascinating that this whole kind of mysterious, half-understood language that they're speaking about. I mean, you know, it's sort of wonderful. It's calming, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. But you you, you have to uh, tell me uh, about the archers being um, a companion in your life. Because it's one of the things you said in the article that it's always been um, a part of your life. So, uh, you know, is is the art is the archers basically a sibling of yours, but just you know, in docudrama form on the radio? Has it always been? Uh, yeah, uh, it's a really nice way of putting it. Totally, I grew so okay. So it is a joke in my family. It's like family mythology that the first 
tune that I recognised, I'm sure this is true for loads of people, but the first tune that I recognised when I was a tiny little, you know, smidge of a thing was the Archer's theme tune. And, and I was absolutely that person who listened with my mother. And, and also when I was a bit bigger, um, we're quite an argumentative family. I mean, I dearly beloved, I love them all very, very deeply and all of that. And we all get on terribly well now, but it was quite a rocky teenage, I was, you know, just constantly having arguments with my parents, like many teenagers. And we used to have supper at seven o'clock and the radio would go on for the archers and it would be that 12 and a half minutes or 15 minutes or whatever of, of peace and quiet. And it was like, almost, you know, it was like a brief ceasefire. And just this moment where we could all be silent and just agree to like the archers. So things, I can remember things also like the sort of family um, joke about Susan when she was imprisoned um, was not that we should be freeing the uh, archers one, but rather that <laughs> my family really hated Susan Carter. <laughs> we should be throwing away the key. <laughs> so there was a kind of mini, there was a mini sort of um, campaign. My brother, my, uh, you know, my brother's also like the archers. Um, uh, by the way, Susan Carter, I would like, now like to say is, is among my favorite. I do, I, I sort of now believe that Susan Carter is the kind of key to the archers and I really love her character. So, but at the time, yeah, we wanted to see the back of that Susan and she said, rotten prison, she deserved it. She'd done something very bad, you know, it was like that. So it's always played a very important part. And actually, you know, this kind of really sad thing, my mother died a couple of years ago, and I know she would have absolutely loved this article. Mm. Um, you know, she would have loved that I was doing it. Uh, so, yeah, it's a really big part of my life. And it was it's just one of those moments in journalism where you think, I can't really believe that they're paying me to do this, because uh, it's just... You know, it's just something I love so much. But at the same time, yeah, I should be being paid danger money for this because I don't want to see the actors. I don't want to see their faces. I don't want to know what they do in their spare time. Um, I don't want to know how they're related to each other in real life and that this one is married to this one. No, 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 no. But anyway, it was worth it. <laughs> Did you discover any, any salacious gossip when you were... Um... You, know, you don't have to tell us what that was, because I, I appreciate that you can't break uh, your journalistic kind of integrity. But, you know, we're actors saying, oh, you know, quite fancy. Think not through actors, because they're discreet and, and well-briefed, no doubt, by the BBC. But when I... I think I, I put out on my Facebook page to various uh, various archers related questions and some of my, um, just to see what people remembered or what they felt about various things, just among my friends and various um, journalists who'd had long careers and like worked in, they'd worked in Pebble Mill in the seventies and things like that. Um, um, yeah, I got a couple of bits of extraordinary, really quite, extraordinary gossip through um instant message from people who'd i'll tell you later Roy but i can assure you i'm certainly not going to say it on the on your very popular <laughs> program we'll have our artists sued off us <laughs> you said that susan the character of susan carter is key to ambridge and and i and i think she is pretty key right but if there's going to be a, a a death match between linda snell Right, and Susan Carter, as to who 
fundamentally is the beating heart of this thing, right? I put it to you, Charlotte Higgins, that it's Linda Snell. I can I can see that argument. I can totally see that argument. Mm-hmm. She is that she makes that village work. She pumps so the energy the into it. House have recognised her work, you know now. She's got her gone. But there's something she'll always be an incomer though, you know. She'll always be an incomer. And I know Susan's not from is that right? No, the Horribans. No, she's actually from Ambridge, isn't she? The Horribans are, are Ambridge mm-hmm. natives. I think there's something about um, Linda. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know. You're I don't agreeing. know if I agree You're with you. Absolutely wrong, I, I don't you know. I think. Am I? Yes. I think I'm disagreeing <laughs> with you. <laughs> okay. Um, Something about the shop, isn't there? Something about having all that power in the shop that um, gives Susan this particular sort of traction. Well, she's a great plot device for news gathering and dissemination of her take on it, isn't she? Yeah. You know, so she She is, before Twitter, she was Ambridge's Twitter. You know, that's what Susan Carter was. But there is something about linda snell which you know village fate the panto which i hate all of this and we also all hate the panto don't we <laughs> the panto is rubbish every year the panto has got some really we have to sit through these actors pretending to do bad acting or just doing bad acting as the case may be no surely not um but it's just a tradition, isn't it? And we just kind of, yeah, sort of like I, it despite ourselves. I did like, you know, the last, about five years ago, four years ago, when it all got incredibly meta, when the BBC, Run Radio 4, would actually do Blythe Spirit with the actors. <laughs> I quite like that, right, you know. And I went to see Blythe Spirit in San Francisco because of that, you know. It's a great play. So, sorry? It's a great play, no? Well, I, I really enjoyed it, yeah. yeah. Have you, seen, you must have seen the film, Roy Field. I hadn't. I hadn't. No, well, this there's is, something this for is, you. This is, well, this is the thing, right? There's Angela Lansbury, she, she did it, and there was a whole load of Anglophiles there, you know, who'd seen her doing her TV programme, which was massive in America in, in the 80s and stuff. But there she was. She's like, she's like, you know, chin wobbling or whatever. But she, she was utterly fantastic. But I don't come from the same cultural tradition as many listeners of The Archers uh, and of Radio 4 listeners. I don't, right? I am son of brown immigrants black immigrants you know in 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 urban brum you know so i haven't read the same books and and doing dum de dum with with lucy uh that was just kind of writ large you know because she had a whole you know back reference and uh, of, of things which i just don't have you know growing up for me now i'm, I'm literate you know, and I, and I watch films and stuff, but um, I don't, you know, the whole canon of classical English literature, let alone classic 1940s, 50s films is over my head. Talk talk to me about early blue beat reggae, 
things like that and stuff. And I, you know, I'm I'm down with you. Um, but that was one of the other interesting things which I got from your article was uh, like Sean O'Connor saying that you know he he took um, and I forgot exactly the reference now. Um, but oh, was it was he talking about what he was going to do with Freddie Pardew going forward? But there was a classical literary reference. So it was extraordinary because he he was an extraordinary interviewee. Sean O'Connor was then a young scriptwriter. He borrowed a motif from Hardy's Jude the Obscure, he told me, when he had Joe Grundy kill his son's ferrets with a hammer. Incompatible as the creatures were with cramped council accommodation. Like the suicide of Jude's siblings, it was done because we are too many. It became clear every step of the way about how many literary stories he borrowed. You know, and I, you know... I think I have this feeling that even if you haven't read Jude the Obscure or even if you haven't read Mill on the Floss, uh, that these stories somehow kind of sit around in our own collective unconscious. They're sort of in the Borsitcher soil. And Mm. so partly because they they are sort of the big mythical grand stories that, you know, they just resonate and they themselves, you know, borrowed from early literature. So took, stole, borrowed. When O'Connor came to edit the show himself in 2013 to 2016, there was more creative plundering from the English novel. He put the Archer's family and Brookfield at the centre of the action because that's your Wuthering Heights, your Thornfield, your Mansfield Park, and you need to fight over that. When Frieda Fry was taken away by the flood, <laughs> the Great Flood, the Great Ambridge Flood. I, I said it was like, was that Mill on the Floss? And he was like, yeah, it's Mill on the Floss. It's George Eliot's Mill on the Floss. Although, you know, um, obviously, <laughs> Frieda Fry is no Maggie Tulliver, but nevertheless, you know. So that was really interesting that he he made enormous use of these big sort of dramatic, sweeping, tragic storylines from English literature and freely, freely drew on them. Um, mm. Yeah, I was. I, I thought that was completely fascinating. His tenure being um, the head honcho at uh, you know at the Archers is somewhat controversial, isn't it? That we, we have to give him big ups and props for the Helen and Rob storyline, and and you also made the point in the article that you know it played out in real time. You know, some a lot of some listeners said it was excruciating. When you realise what was going on at first, we didn't, you know. But there's a but, but the penny dropped for people at slightly different different moments. It was so well written and so well, so, so well acted, um, and that arguably blew up the archers, didn't it? That yes, social media has come and uh, sh- shone a light on this weird eccentric five million people listening in isolation to this thing. But in terms of the media consciousness of the Archers, you know, Sean's time and that storyline definitely, you know, lit a lit a bonfire underneath it or a grenade. That's a better better metaphor. Lit Absolutely. A grenade yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Although I think things things are cyclical. I mean, one of the things that I did when I um, was researching the article was go back and look at press coverage from the fifties and sixties, and it was pretty blanket. The Archers, it's really hard to imagine how big it was then. 
uh, I mean, there was telly, but it's not like many people had one, um, uh, you know, really far through the 50s um, and well into the 60s. Um, you know, there were three channels only, um, uh, sorry, two channels only, and then BBC Two came along in the in the 60s. You know, there just wasn't, there wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't the wise choice we have now. And it was absolutely massive. And those people, they were so famous. And every weekend they were opening fakes or giving public events or, and really in character, doing it all in character to the extent that, you know, there's, you know, some of them found it quite hard to unravel themselves from the character, from 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 the person they were playing. So, I think it does. It goes in. It goes in waves. But yeah, I mean, what amazed me actually, Royfield. Maybe I'm always a bit naive about my own work, but the how much they want, they they regard it as important. The editors to get press. To, to to get to have a storyline that really attracts the newspapers. I was thinking, you know, why? That you've got lots and lots of listeners, and um, the BBC is a massive institution compared with any newspaper. But it really talking to them, it just seemed very obvious to me that it matters that they sometimes get these storylines that really push through. Um, and that was clear talking to Vanessa Whitburn as well. So she'd had various, you know, Elizabeth. Uh, abortion of 1991 famously and and also the Simon Pemberton domestic violence story that that was quite sort of well covered in the I think that was also the 90s as well wasn't it so it comes it comes and goes it comes and goes but yeah um, of course this as you as you so wisely say this was the kind of Twitter and Facebook storyline um, it 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 it, it it yeah it really sort of hit home and and it was it was it was a magnificent i mean they won't have one of those again for a long while that was such such a magnificent and such a touching and such a kind of excruciating as you say line i remember when she was raped you know and where i was standing in the kitchen and i couldn't quite hear it because i was like i was making some food I was, did that really happen you know it was absolutely extraordinary you know, I listened to the death of John Archer. I couldn't tell you where I was. I was definitely listening when Susan uh, was thrown in prison. I was a student, but I couldn't tell you, and, and I would have had to have tuned in at seven, but I couldn't tell you that day. But there is something about the reinforcement of social media now that when Helen stabbed Rob, I was driving in the car, listening to it on the way from Brighton, uh, coming back to London, I'm going through Wandsworth. I know exactly where I was. And, in, and, it, and it wasn't just the power of the storyline, it's the whole ecosystem around it now, you know, because people yeah. keep talking about it, you know, so it gets reinforced, reinforced. I pulled over, yeah. I was on the Harrow Road, in um, Notting Hill, Maidervale, when uh, Mike Tucker agreed that uh, when he came to um, when he came to peace, um, basically the fact that he was going to be the father to a Downs child, you know, and I had to pull over. I was like, <gasps> you know, and and it was big. And then of course, 
whilst it was still fresh in my mind, you then go and log on online as everybody's talking about it. You yeah. know, it's it just, it is. Yeah, you're up. You are right, Roy. I do agree with you. And in fact, now that you say that, that moment when I wasn't quite sure whether Helen had been raped or not, I, I, it was, it was a Sunday morning, and I, um, I tweeted what just happened, you know, and Philip Pullman, the author, name drop clang, Philip Pullman replied to me, which I'm always, <laughs> I will always remember. He replied to me saying, Rob has planted his infernal seed in Helen's organic garden. <laughs> you shouldn't be laughing at such a... <laughs> the whole thing, it was, it was magnificent, yeah, but awful. <laughs> <laughs> it's so Philip Pullman as well, like really solemn. <laughs> One of my favourite authors, incidentally, so I was kind of very excited that he'd uh, helped me out there on the plot of the arches. Mm-hmm. Sean O'Connor, you said, is kind of been unleashed by you know not working at the Beeb and anymore and I think he's you know he's it, we can say he's flounced off can't we uh, you might I have I have no idea how he um left EastEnders for example so um yeah mm. all right so he was kind of unburdened by as you know by being, you know, diplomatic. By being a corporate BBC person, yeah. yes, and yeah, yeah. being terribly careful. Yeah. Um, who, who else, other than me, of course? Who else was uh, <laughs> was good to chat to? Did you think, oh, crumbs? Uh, you know, they've, they've given me an insight into things. Well, loads of people. I mean, it was just it was of the people of the team in the Archers. I I really really enjoyed talking to Jessica Bunch. Have you ever had her on the show? No. No. Oh, yes. She's so great. So she does the future storylining, the, mm. the, the long-term documents. So she knows what's happening to Elizabeth in 10 years' time or whatever. I mean, and yeah. just the way she spoke about um, her idea of Ambridge and the way it just trickles on even without us. And she was just so full of brilliant insight and a lot of love for the show and... And also, I just found it, I, she explained to me, I mean, not much of this went into peace in the end, but she explained to me in enormous detail, which I found so interesting, the, the machine-like precision of making the show and that, that this constant 10-week um, cycle that they're on, interlocking 10 weeks, which, of course, makes it very, it genuinely makes it very difficult to stop and start it because there are so many moving parts. She explained all that to me really beautifully and clearly, um, and we and she, we talked a lot about the idea of time and the arches, you know, the idea that it does happen, as we've talked about in real time, the fact that it's just been going on for a long time, the fact that, you know, if you're working on the arches, you have this landscape that's sort of pre-made, but and you can sort of plant things and prune things, but you, you know, you're never starting afresh. She just spoke about it really beautifully. Um, Barry Faramond of the cast, I just absolutely loved. He was talked. He talks brilliantly because he has an interest in um, sound and sound technology. Um, he was just very. He was extremely illuminating on um, working in radio, doing drama through mm-hmm. audio only. Um, ben Norris was fantastic, and I know you've interviewed him. Um, 
What I found, I mean, he's a really sharp and clever, interesting guy, clearly, but what I found great about him as an interviewee was that because he's quite new, he hasn't internalised the Archer's world as fully as some of the people who've been on it for a really long time. So to him, it is still kind of peculiar and, you know, fresh and unfamiliar. And that can be really good if you're trying to, you know, sometimes it's, you know, if someone can play the violin beautifully, they can't necessarily tell you about how they're doing it. Mm. He's still learning in a sense, not that, I mean, he's brilliant, He's but he's still learning. I think he would say that. So he has a kind of acute sense of how it's done, which was really fascinating for me. Um, yeah, the whole Foley side of things was Ness, the Foley artist, the spot ninja. Ah, I just fell in love with that woman. Her enthusiasm, her love for it, her sort of joy in the creativity of doing spot effects and her generosity and kindness. She was just, have you ever spoken to her? Have you ever had her on the show? I, I haven't, but we've done a couple of Dum De Dum lives in Birmingham. Yeah. And each time we combine it with a tour of uh, the mailbox of the Archer Studio at the Mailbox. Mm. There's two things that people always rave about when they come back. And the irony is, I walk people to the Mailbox. I've never actually done the tour myself. Is it? But I, so I need, to, I, need, I need to fix that. Um, they go, oh my God, the bull is like a cardboard box. Right, with various little knobs on over for various different sound effects. And they're blown away by her. And they're like, because she, she takes the tour, or at least she takes right. one of the tours anyway. Yeah. And so she had complete what you said. She has a love and a passion and an insight, and people are just blown away by, oh my god! So the sound of a, a a calf being birthed is X. You wouldn't believe what it is or whatever. And and it's yeah. her, her infection and her knowledge. People just come back in love with her. Yeah. Uh, she she was just she she just had me she just had me completely you know I'd follow her through the ends of the earth she was so great I loved her so much <laughs> um, but there were loads I mean you you know everybody not you know everybody had something had something to offer it was I mean talking to June Spencer it's like I'm talking to a living legend over my incredibly poor internet connection thank you the gods of the internet but that was. I mean, that was just amazing. You know, she's so on it. And, you know, when she says to you, well, dear, and of course I learned how to do radio drama during the war and you couldn't make any mistakes. You know, she's such a pro. Again, sort of, gen you know, they were all very generous and delightful. But, I, you know, I really enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed also talking to Nicola and Cara of the Academic Archers Great well, sort of stalwarts well, and founders well, who was such insight and again such generosity. We had slight slight beef because I was I said to them, well, uh, my section was bigger than your section. Oh no, Royfield, and they were right. They were <laughs> they were right, Charlotte Higgins. <laughs> but no, they're they're, they're actually uh, pr properly lovely them pair. Pro pro properly lovely and. Um, and what what they've created over the uh, the academic archers is something in, incredibly uh, clever. And 
dumdy dum esque in a way, in that there's an the, an ecosystem away from now the actual thing which they're kind of commenting on. They've got their books and whatever and and stuff, and we have our kind of like podcast world and and whatever as well. Um, hey, folks! I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How long did it take from, from when you got the, you know, the thumbs up, the green light, so to speak? Um, how long were you working on this? And were you able just to work on this? Uh, solely, are we doing other things as well in, in between? Uh, so it's it's more complicated than one might think. So I started on it in December 2019, extraordinarily. I went to the studio once and the whole, and I said hello to some people and watched a couple of episodes being recorded. And the whole idea was um, this is just me saying hello, I'll be back with a notebook like seven times mm. next year. Um, and <laughs> I wasn't because there was a pandemic. Um, and also another complicating factor is that actually anyway from January to the end of April, I was off work writing a book. So um, I, so I had started working on it. I had started thinking about it. Oh, I managed to get, I got to the BBC archives pre-pandemic as well. That was also in December 2019. And then I had this long gap because I was off. There was a pandemic came back, did a lot of, had to do a lot of journalism about the collapse of British culture in the face of the pandemic. Um, eventually towards the autumn, my editors were kind of like, are we gonna get this? Like, come on, we need to see the Archer's piece. Oh yes, I interviewed, I interviewed Jeremy Howe, the editor and some other people in about June. And, but then I, in, in, then I in earnest was working on it, um, October, November, and the early part of December. Uh, and I don't think I published any pieces during November because I was working on this. Um, 
I mean, I do a couple of other things. I write editorials for The Guardian, which don't get bylines, you know, leading articles, which don't have bylines. So that's also enough. But yeah, I, there was a there was um there was a period of a month when I was kind of completely solidly working on it. And frankly, that I mean, for journalism, that's such an unusual privilege that uh, you would be able to devote so much time to something as apparently we know it's not true that it's insignificant, but it's apparently insignificant as the archers. Um, obviously, we know that it's an incredibly important cultural uh, artifact and requires a lot of thought and reporting if you're going to think about it properly. Um, but no, it was a huge, huge privilege to, to be allowed to have that much time to spend on it. So it was, we like to do, we like to make them a quite slow burn. You know, you get a sort of richer sense of something if you insert time into the process. Um, um, if, if there hadn't been a pandemic, it would have been a different piece. There would have been more on the ground reporting and less struggling with a bad internet connection and doing interviews on Zoom. But I was pleased that I had managed to do this in person, a bit of in-person stuff. And then um, I had to buy a lot of books secondhand because I couldn't get to the library. So I've now got an enormous, um, overwhelmingly large Archer's library of my own. And yeah, that was it. That was the process. You mentioned in the piece that you, that this has been a companion of your to your life and very obviously you have a lot of love for the archers how different do you think that love and innate understanding that you have for it um inform the piece as opposed to let's say a journalist coming to it who wasn't au fait with it do you think reading in between the lines you could actually tell that you have this uh, reverence, love, understanding, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for, for the show. You know, how, were you this objective journalist, or was it a five thousand word love letter? That's a really, really interesting question. I think that it did need to be to do the piece in the form that I did it. It did have to be somebody who knew it really, really well, um, and. One of the nice things that I just, you know, when people posted it on Facebook and you can kind of see and I could see comments and one of the nice things was I could see really hardened fans saying, well, at least she obviously listens to the Archers, you know. It, 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 there was a sense that I, I kind of knew my stuff and I think, I think that was probably necessary to this kind of piece. Um, I did, I mean, the, it was really, what I wanted to do and was the challenge and was really quite hard to do was to try and distance myself from it a bit, was to try and um, break that familiarity that makes it makes something hard to describe. You know, if you want to, if you want to describe something really clearly, you have to defamiliarize it first. You have to look at it from a distance. You have to pretend that you don't know it. Um, and that's a really hard trick to pull off. That was that was one of the really challenging aspects. And um, again, on the other side, what I was really pleased about was people saying to me, um, I don't really care about the archers. I've never listened to it. I've listened to it a couple of times. I, I hate it, you know, but I really found the piece interesting. So 
I mean, I'm not saying everybody thought it was brilliant. I'm sure it had lots of flaws, but it was that was what I had wanted to capture that I would somehow be able to explain it. I had in my mind, I had in my mind a kind of mythical American reader because we have quite a lot of American readers. You know, why would you want to continue reading this piece about something that you know has nothing to do with you? <laughs> um, you've never really heard of the arches. Why would this be interesting? So you have to keep them in mind. And then I, ought to, I was also thinking, yeah, but Roy Field. And people like Roy Field have got to get something out of this as well. And so doing both those things was really hard. But I wouldn't have, you know, with a piece like this, you've kind of got to have some sympathy for the subject matter, right? I mean, otherwise you'd send yourself mad spending so many months with some something that you thought was terrible or hated. So I think it was important to me that there was an underlying love. And my my editor had said to me, I think you should come clean about. It. I think you know you should you should say that it's been very important to you. You know, you know you should declare your interest almost, but also that this is underlying this long piece. And I'll tell you something else. I loved it even more when I finished, which is not always going to be the case. You know, you, you might think after months and months, and you know it's really hard writing this and um, sort of thing and. Technically, it's a hard exercise to make a 5,000 word piece readable all the way through. And, you know, it had a lot of edits. We always do a lot of editing and that's always exhausting. And But nevertheless, I'm, I am, my love for the archers is completely intact. Um, I've almost been more committed to it since. And I pitched to my colleagues at The Guardian, um, that I should take on the old Nancy Banks Smith job of the of a month in the Archers, and breaking news, they accepted, and I am going to be writing <laughs> a monthly column about the Archers. Yay. So that's that's um that's now public because I've told you, and I'm really really excited about it, and a bit little bit scared. So that'll be coming out every month, last Saturday of the month, more or less. That's the plan. And um, I'll never, ever do it a tenth as well as Nancy Banks-Smith, but I will give it my all. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to have to have you on even more regularly now then, whatever. Um, you raise a really interesting point, starting to slightly wind this down, um, that I, through social media, I have being connected to a whole universe um, of other Archers listeners. And this is pre-dum-de-dum, you know, so the tweet-alongs kind of came first and you're like, oh my gosh, and, you know, this person's funny, this person's clever, this person's whatever and stuff, and we are a community. Because, um, as I said before, um, listening to this thing, up until social media really got its teeth into it, was a solitary experience. People might have done it with their families, but fundamentally there's no water cooler moments. It's not like who shot JR and whatever. And, you know, people talk about it at work outside of the, you know, crumbs. I'm showing my age there, who shot JR. But be, but um, hopefully you understood what I was saying. Um, I, I, I remember it quite well myself, don't worry. <laughs> just checking, just checking. Or shall I say, who killed Dirty Den? You know, prove my age again. But anyway, so um, 
one of the amazing things is for me being in America key to people's anglophilia is an appreciation of the archers so many people who so when I do meetups over here in, in California for dum dum meetups I will say that every American is a fan of Radio 4 and it almost and to prove that they're a fan of Radio 4 they say and I listen to the archers you know that's actually really quite key and of course it goes um um, it goes beyond that. So they're all into, you know, with its classic literature. And then they show their bona fides again by saying things like, you know, oh, I like um, Are You Being Served? I watch the rewrites on PBS and, and whatever, and you know, th things like that. But it's absolutely key in terms of, um, I think, for lots of people who aren't English and British, um, a key sense of ownership. Of, of the BBC, it's actually through the Archers. And a key understanding of what for me is a bygone age of, of English culture, you know. Village fates still happen, but I've never been to one. You know, stir up Sundays, I've never heard of that until, until the Archers, I just, you know. <laughs> Does that even exist outside the Archers? Oh, thank, thank you, thank you, you know. But even people observing Lent and saying, I am going to give this up for Lent. I don't happen in my neck at Birmingham. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Right. So, um, so it, it 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 really demonstrates the soft cultural power not only of the Archers, the BBC, England, and Britain, but I really do see it. You know, um, when I go to other bits of the globe, whether I'm in Toronto, and we did a massive meetup in Toronto, we had 25 people, all Canadians. Um, some of them had British roots. My mother was, you know, British, or my or my dad, or whatever. But they they talk with such kind of glowing terms, not just about the archers, but actually about England, you know, and and about Britain, and and yeah, I just think the BBC. Have utterly missed a trick with, with iPlayer. That iPlayer should be available for people around the world, and you just you know you got to pay ten dollars just like Netflix. Um, what's your big, big, biggest, most excellentest takeaway from your year plus? Not only consuming but writing about the Archers. You got to make. You got to really hit the landing here now because we're going to end, Charlotte. No pressure. <laughs> I think, and I have to say, Nicola and Cara really helped me with this. Helped me understand this. I haven't quite seen this about the archers before. Mm. I, I got very, uh, I got very sort of interested in you know the archers. What's real about the archers or reality and made up and fact, fact and fiction and I, I was going into a bit of a tailspin about it somehow and Cara one of them Cara or Nicola said to me but it is real and suddenly I was like yeah you're absolutely right it is real and what she meant what they meant was the archers is real for us because it constitutes the real material of our lived lives like 
when I go and listen to the archers in an hour, that will be part of my real life. It will affect me in some way. It's not it, it's not that I'm over-investing in something that's made up, it's that but the the act of listening to something is part of the texture of my life. In that sense, it's a real experience. And um, it was just this kind of kind of quite simple philosophical point that I just thought, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. You know, you it, it's yeah, it's part of it's part of the texture of our lived experience, and and that's why it's really important. There was that, and there was also the thing about the thing about how I think I end the piece with this: like its power. You couldn't have known this in 1951 because nobody knew that it was going to be this incredibly long-lasting thing. You know, they thought June Spencer thought she was coming in for a few weeks or months and bye-bye the archers. So this is something you can only know about the archers now, but like the most powerful thing in the archers is its time, is longevity, is its regularity, is the thing that it potters along at as um, the pace of our life, but also that it accumulates, like every time it's on, it accumulates more power because it has more, it, it has more memory as an institution, it has more memory as a drama. And every time there's another episode, it's sort of a richer and richer thing. I mean, it is a beautiful work of genius, The Archers. It's like this amazing experimental, 70-year experimental, avant-garde work of art. And we love it. And I'm going to land there, Royfield Brown. <laughs> you know what? You, you, you nailed it. You, you, you utterly nailed it. As somebody who sat in, what, a 230-odd-year-old uh, uh, experiment in democracy, uh, which is America, you know, well done, well done. Uh, Charlotte Higgins, thank you for coming on to uh, this very special uh, Dum Dee Dum. Um, people will be will be able to see you. So, um, which of those books behind? Because we are going to put this up on YouTube. And um, which of those books behind behind you uh, would you recommend uh, that uh, you know someone should go out and purchase? Put what, it out. my books? Yeah, so I'm looking at, I've got Richard Long. Or I, if I'd known you were going to put this online, I would have done a lot less kind of gurning and kind of grabbing myself. Anyway, so apologies, viewers, for not doing a more... I would have actually brushed my hair. That's my latest book. Uh, it's called Red Thread. It's about uh-huh. mazes and labyrinths. And I've got a book coming out in the autumn, which is a book of retellings of Greek myths. So there you go. Wowza, wowza. <laughs> Thank you for coming on to uh, this very special Dumpty Dum. Thank you for all uh, for, the, for that great article. And, and the, the, the one thing I did forget to say, um, when you said that, you know, there are people that, oh, she has exactly, she has actually listened to it. Um, because there are, there are five million listeners of, of this thing. So there's five million different interpretations of it. So the very fact that your article was was met with such warmth from such a critical audience goes to the strength of strength of the article, and you absolutely did nail it in terms of being able to explain the archers and what it means culturally to people who aren't archers fans, and then an archers fans who think they know everything also could still take something away. See, there's a neat trick uh, was actually played and, and executed there. Charlotte Higgins going to say goodbye. Goodbye, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for having me.
The ideology of the Archers, in fact, was most clearly set forth as long ago as 1955, after its most sensational episode went out. The death of the glamorous Grace Archer in a fire in the stables at Grey Gables, a broadcasting event that utterly eclipsed the opening night of ITV, Britain's first commercial television channel. The significant part of the story was not so much the death of the young wife in her husband's arms, as the dialogue that took place the following day between patriarch Dan Archer, the father-in-law of the dead woman, and his daughter, Christine, who has been played for 67 years by Leslie Sawood. Addressing his distressed daughter, Dan said, Me and Simon there, in the milking parlour shed. We've got the same feelings as you, and everybody else, but we've still had to carry on milking, and all we can do is the same as folks somehow managed to do in similar circumstances. Just carry on. Just Carry On is the real story of the Archers. People may die, disaster may strike, but life will endure. There will always be cows to milk, there will be lambs born in the spring, there will be harvest in the autumn. The months roll, the years turn, the Archers are still there, embodying its own ideology, by itself continuing and enduring. And in this fictional world, everything will be all right, even if it won't, it really won't, out here in the real world, in our cold and fractured world. I don't know what the final episode of The Archers will be, said Jeremy Howe, and I hope I'm never tasked with it. But whatever happens, it will, and he slapped his kitchen table twice for emphasis, end well. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. <laughs> 